Shelton, your host. Welcome back, and thank you for inviting me into your home this week. Uh, we are talking, and by we, as you can see here, I am joined this week by uh, John P. Capitalist. Hi, John. Howdy. Hey, hey. Welcome back to the show. It's been a while. It has been a while. I've been off doing other uh, other things. Um, still follow Scientology, but uh, uh, and cults, and uh, you know, uh, extremist behavior but uh, haven't been as active uh, lately, but I wanted to, wanted to reach out um, and, uh, and knock around a couple of ideas for podcasts with you. Exactly. And, it's, and they're great ideas. They were going to do this one, and then we have, a, we have at least one more planned as well, which I think you guys are going to like. So this week, we are discussing uh, you know, Scientology again. And lately, as you guys have seen from interviews I've been doing, um, and other information that's been coming in, there has been quite a bit of trouble in the Scientology universe over the last couple of years. Uh, and if you have, and I'm not even going to try to reiterate everything that has been covered by hours of podcasting, there's a lot of details. And we're going to cover a lot of those through the course of this talk. But um, just let's just uh, leave it at Scientology is in a lot of trouble right now. But how much trouble and how much long term trouble? And the, the, um, the reason I'm so happy to have John on today is because we, he is playing a little bit of a devil's advocate role for me, um, both privately before we even when we were doing prep for this and, and here publicly. I wanted to sort of, <clears throat> I have an optimism bias, I will say. Uh, that's an extra thing, right, where you kind of get a little bit too optimistic about the possibilities of what could happen. And with Scientology, of course, for years and years, lots and lots of people over the course of time have thought this legal case, this screw up, this mess up, this um, government intervention of some kind is going to spell the end of Scientology. It's going to be all over. We're not going to hear about them anymore. A year or two from now, it's going to you know, be dust, right? And those predictions have uniformly been wrong. Uh, Scientology is still around. And so with the recent problems, troubles, um, I got to thinking with my optimism bias, hey, wow, maybe this, you know, the, I don't know, this is looking pretty bad. And so in talking with John about it, he was like, well, there's a few things to consider. And I thought, what a great show. Let's do this as a show so I can share this with you guys and what some of his thoughts on this were. So um, did that, that about cover it, John? Absolutely. I think that's a good statement. Excellent. Excellent. So what we're going to do is um, basically look at kind of point by point what's been happening and what we can and can't derive from that. What should we be thinking about this? Mm -hmm. um, and, and in a conservative manner rather than an overly optimistic one. Right. So what, I, what I'd like to do is, is start off before we look at specific things that are happening in Scientology. Um, I'd like to, put to, um, to talk about some general thoughts about how you predict things. Mm -hmm. um, and this is sort of drawn from all my experience in all these years at Global Capitalism Headquarters, where we're trying to predict the future of companies and thus the, their stock prices. Um, and and also some other work, uh, you know, around, you know, the political environment or geopolitics or, you know, global finance and all sorts of other things that have bearing on the market. Um, and 
I have also I, I tend to be an optimist like you about, you know, bad people, um, you know, bad things happening to bad people, good things happening to good people. And I tend to overstate how fast and how significant those events can be. So um, so what I want to do is I want to say, look, I am absolutely on the side of believing as as hard as anybody else in in the home viewing audience that Scientology is a dangerous organization and that it would be better for the world if Scientology didn't have any impact on the world. Um, so I am I am on everybody's side here. But what I wanted to do was to talk about how to be more thoughtful um, about the impact of some of these problems and challenges on Scientology so that that we're more able to continue to campaign uh, to expose its abuses and uh, reduce its ability to inflict harm on people. Um, you're right. In other words, I'm, I'm trying to remind people this is a marathon and not a sprint. Exactly. Great. So, um, so what about doomsday apocalypse? <laughs> <For> okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so let's, you know, so, so you could certainly say, you know, there are some doomsday things that are bouncing it, or there are some very significant things that are bouncing around. All right. Um, you know, we, you do have, you know, we will talk about some variety of, of all the following and maybe more. We'll talk about COVID um, and we'll talk about the chase wave. We'll talk probably briefly. I don't think it's that important to the to the overall discussion here. The Danny Masterson case. Mm -hmm. um, we'll talk about the potential for arbitration agreements to be invalidated, um, which I think opens a major litigation front. And there's probably other stuff that I'm not thinking of at the moment. Um, Those are but, the main things on the menu right now. Okay. Yeah. And so, so the thing is that um, you know, predicting doom for organizations is really is really perilous. And um, you know, it's like predicting the end of the world. It's uh, it's really just a sort of a sub variety of the genre of apocalyptic uh, predictions. And and you have to realize also that Scientology is actually a very complex organization. It's a relatively small size, you know, but there's about five thousand staff members serving maybe on the order of fifteen thousand members. So there's a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of bureaucratic momentum that can carry Scientology along without a strong leader. So even in the case of a leadership vacuum, such as Miscavige dying or having a health problem that means that he can't run the organization, um, it can continue for quite a while. Mm. Um, and so I, I think that organizational complexity is actually a very important uh, indicator of survival ability. Um, the Nexium sex cult in Albany, New York, where the, uh, the leader was recently sentenced to life in prison, um, they had a few thousand active members, a couple, two to three thousand, not much smaller than Scientology, but they only had about 10 paid staff members. So when the founder was arrested, the organization was just simply not able to continue. It couldn't make payroll, couldn't keep the offices open, and it basically rolled up the sidewalks within a couple of months after Keith Ranieri was arrested. Um, so organizational complexity is something that we, um, you know, that, that, that gives a lot of momentum to a company, even one that's facing disastrous uh, situations. And then, you know, the thing that made you the other point as you, as you hinted is um, there have been massive shocks that have hurt Scientology before. Operation Snow White, where most of the senior management team went to jail. Hubbard was an unindicted conspirator, but his wife went to jail and, you know, what, 11 or 13 other people. Mm -hmm. um, you would think that that would, that would absolutely cause any organization to blow up. And yet Scientology's membership peaked a decade after Operation Snow White. 
Yep. Scientology also survived the death of Hubbard. Um, and there was clearly no succession plan in place. Uh, Pat and Annie Broker were just not the people that were going to be capable of running that organization. And nobody saw Ms. Gavage coming. Um, uh, the Debbie Cook email, Leah Remini's show, plus all the other books, documentaries, and all that stuff. The Tom Cruise couch jumping video. Um, anonymous and, protests that went on for a year. Yep. And the internet, all of this stuff, they've continued to survive. Yep. And so the thing is that um, the current problems are absolutely serious, but Scientology will adapt. So we can talk a little bit about what I think in terms of adaptations that it can uh, do. And, and I think if we have time, we can also talk about um, that there are potentially some things that could hurt Scientology more waiting in the wings, um, you know, that could cause the wheels not to come off, but that could further impair the, the company's or the organization's ability to, to cause damage. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Good. So that's, kind of, that's kind of the five-minute overview. And then if we say, okay, let's dive into the theory. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about apocalyptic predictions. Mm-hmm. Apocalyptic predictions, predicting the end of the world in particular, um, have actually been going on for about 2,000 years. And interestingly, apocalypse doesn't mean end of the world inherently. It's become, it's, it, it initially meant secret wisdom. Right. So that, you know, a lot of times when people are predicting the end of the world, they're essentially claiming that they have secret wisdom and and that that's that they have this unique vision and unique uh, credibility. How interesting, how interesting that that ties directly in with Lifton's thought reform points, you know, the secret knowledge or sacred science. Yeah. And and so, you know, I think people either make these predictions or they want to believe them because they want to feel special. Mm-hmm. Right. If you are a peasant in medieval England, or if you are a person in a small town in America that never goes anywhere and doesn't see much of the world and isn't very educated and feels like life is passing them by, that the idea that, you know, I'm not just another peasant um, living a peasant life that will ultimately be forgotten, um, if the end of the world comes when I'm alive, that's going to be really cool especially if the apocalypse is the harbinger of a better world to come. Yes. And that's okay. actually one of the fears even outside Scientology with, you know, Christian nationalism or some of these more extreme versions of, of uh, apocalyptic thinking in yep. America right now. Yeah. And, and if you think about it, um, you know, not just the extremists, but this has been a you know, factor for a while, the Jehovah's Witnesses in 1918, mm-hmm. right? That, that's a whole... You know, they are one of many um, religions coming out of a tradition called the Millerites. Um, and there were other groups as well that believed, you know, the end of the world was going to happen in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. So the JWs went out big and bet on 1918 as being the end of the world. And to a certain extent, you can understand that because what was going on in 1918 was World War I. Right. And it sure looked like the end of the world was at hand if you looked at the smoldering rubble that Europe um, was left in and the, the senseless slaughter and the just the idiocy of why the war got started. All of that, it sure looked like the world was toast. Yeah. And um, the JWs have been trying to figure out how to get past the 1918 prediction and all of the other failed end of the world predictions since. Uh, and I think it's finally starting to dawn on people that uh, maybe the end of the world is uh, just not going to happen in our lifetime. Um, you know, and on, on a smaller scale, 
sort of going from the big, you know, hey, the end of the universe down to something a little more practical. Um, let's look at another example, the Soviet Union. So everybody in the West that was a political scientist or political strategist or economist or whatever, everybody in the West knew that the Soviet Union was unsustainable. The business model simply didn't work. They were spending half of their GDP on defense. They couldn't feed their people. They were importing grain from the West that they denounced. Um, and it was an utter, complete train wreck. So the thing was, everybody did know that the Soviet Union was doomed, but absolutely nobody correctly predicted when it would fall apart and what would, ha and, and what would be the, the collapse that brought it down. And, and, it was that, and that actually, I just want to kind of underline and boldface that for a second, because I, having lived through that, you know, as well, I, I, I thought that was such a good point, just, just because, because everybody's predicted the end of Scientology, right? But when it, when it finally happens, it'll probably be through some fashion that nobody sees coming. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I think, um, you know, another example. So if we sort of take it down from countries to cults, um, again, returning to Nexium and on my blog a few years ago, I did a comparison when uh, Ranieri was arrested in 2018 between Scientology and um, uh, and Nexium. And my thesis was that it wasn't actually a horribly similar situation, but there were some, it was, it was more of a fun article than a, you know, detailed blow by blow. But, but the thing was, Nexium was never you know, a 10th as big as Scientology, no. but they, but they poked along for 20 years um, until, um, you know, and they, they had a, a spy wing that, that was like OSA, they sued opponents ruthlessly. Um, and so they did a lot of the sort of stuff to, to fight with enemies that Scientology did. Um, but the thing that blew them up was this small group within the main, the, the large organization where, um, where they were branding women with Keith Raniere's initials without their consent. Um, and then when the, when the uh, New York Times picked up a story that was written by a, uh, a blogger um, that had you know, disclosed this, um, the government went after him and shut him down. Um, and so, so the thing was, yes, Nexium imploded quickly, but it took a lot longer than anybody uh, had had thought and so a lot of parallels there with scientology a lot of people pointing out you know financial irregularities uh all sorts of other bad behavior you can read up on Nexium, but but the thing is that a smaller cult than scientology was was harder to kill yeah. um yeah. and and so you say okay so we have this horrible track record as humans and even as educated expert humans like all the political scientists on the soviet union um we have this horrible track record in predicting organizational collapse. So you say, okay, why is why are we so bad at this? And the answer is that most analysis does what's called straight lining the present. So you take the present instant and you say, that's the way it's going to be forever. So the present instant of what Scientology is dealing with in the wake of COVID, chase wave, blah, 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 and say, that's, that's going to be their reality forever. And we tend to underestimate counter moves. Um, the degree, you know, of uh, energy that an organization will put in, it, you, you start to get the idea that it's like a wounded deer, you know, that 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 you that you have, you know, is just going to sit there and lick its wounds until you finish it off, you know, from you know deer hunting, um, and that's really naive. Um, organizations really stop 
you know, rarely they, they don't stop. They go deer in the headlights and they freeze and wait for the car to hit it. Um, and so, so I think, you know, we have to, we have to look for, um, both structural situations that show significant weakness. And I think we misassess those. And we'll talk about some of the things we misassess with Scientology. And then there has to be a catalyst. Actually, great points. And let me let me perhaps throw a couple of examples out here that have just come to light from the interviews I've been doing lately, where we have more present time information coming out of the organization now. And we find out things like, yes, it's absolutely positively confirmed that the RPF is no more. Hmm. There's no more RPF. It wow. was completely canceled. Um, there is. Um, there were other changes made. The forced abortions issue is is it's still present, but not to the degree and not anywhere near as blatant as it used to be. Right. The enforced disconnection is very much still in play, but. The willingness, the enthusiasm that the organization of Scientology has now for openly declaring suppressive its own members, right, so, uh, Sea Org members and Scientologists, has gone way, way down. They, okay, let, they, let, me do, let me just ask. Let me just ask yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, are you saying, you know, because we've known for a long time that they no longer publish the official Goldenrod SP mm -hmm. declares, mm -hmm. um, and we know that there's. Uh, a particular way that on Facebook they encourage you to unfriend people mm -hmm. so that it doesn't look like the organization is the one that's doing it. Yep. Um, are you talking about something that's in addition to those kinds of things? I am. I'm. Um, I'm. It's a. It's a change of practice where it's an attempt to minimize the uh, the disconnection. And the way they figured out to do this, and I, and they actually did this to me. Um, and then they ended up kicking me out anyway. But in order to, to try to minimize it, what they do is they sit the person down and say, well, look, you've committed violations of our justice codes, of our, of our high crimes. You've, in other words, you've done things that are suppressive, that are suppressive acts. That's what we call it in Scientology. Because you've done those things and you acknowledge you've done those things, we're not going to declare you. But you're still going to have to do the A to E steps, or you're still going to have to jump through these various hoops we're going to give you in order to get back in good standing and good graces. But we're not kicking you out. We're not disconnecting you. We're not even kicking you out of the Sea Org in some cases. We're mm -hmm. just going to make you do this penance internally here, and we're going to kind of treat you like you're a suppressive, but not really. Be and they and they apparently are concentrating that kind of attention on people who have family or connections where if they were severed or disconnected, it could end up in a PR problem, mm -hmm. as it has for years. I mean, you know, you go to Tony's blog to this day, he's got a running total of, you know, Sally Sue has been disconnected from her daughters for 3,000 days, and he's got a long list of people, and they're trying to not add any more names to that list. Right. So the, the point being that these have been responses to what we have all been, Leah, Tony, Mike, you know, me to a lesser degree, have been exposing for years now. Scientology's actually changed. And believe me, 10 years ago, I never would have imagined that they would ever cancel the RPF. 
So, so just building on what you just said there. Yeah. So now let's look at that from an economic standpoint. So, you know, certainly from a, you know, certainly from a standpoint of, you know, that this is uh, a PR move that's, you know, likely, but I think it's also uh, very important on an economic uh, move. Now let's, before I get into that, let's remember that this is policy. This has been a long time part of the organization. And so in order to risk the, you know, chaos and the questioning and the doubt and, and so forth, when something, uh, you know, big change like this is made, you have to say, well, what's worse? What is the worst, you know, what is the thing that's worse than having to tell people, you know, having to sell people who might say this is off policy? What's worse than eliminating the RPF and taking heat for that? And the answer is, I think there's probably a worker shortage, um, even with all the stuff that they're doing with the R1 visas and all the other stuff that they're doing to dragoon people into the Sea Org or into being on staff. Um, so how many people, when you were like on RPF, mm -hmm. would you say were on RPF at any given time uh, across the organization? Across, across the world, it was going to be somewhere between um, two or 300 people. Okay, that's about what I thought. Yeah. And, and so you think all of a sudden those 300 people, you know, can't be put into just shit work. You need them for uh, customer facing or um, administrative tasks, and you can't put them into made up punitive work, which is essentially, you know, cleaning toilets with a toothbrush. It doesn't actually forward the organization. Right. Um, you know, it's, it may result in clean bathrooms, but that doesn't actually drive the organization's mission successfully. Right. So, um, so it sounds to me like there's a labor shortage and, um, you know, there's also behind the, the lack of disconnection, um, that works on rank and file people. But if you let's pretend that, uh, Bobby Dugan's, uh, one of Bobby Dugan's kids is in the Sea Org, um, and is suppressive and now has to disconnect from dad or something. And dad decides he doesn't like to do that. Um, you know, you've got a billionaire against Scientology who can draw, you know, the way if, if, if you try to disconnect a whale's kid from them, it could really blow up in a big way. Yep. Big Whereas if time. you try to, if you disconnect, if some chiropractor's kid disconnects from them to stay in the Sea Org, probably not such a big deal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. And there's also the secondary layer of PR in that, what has the, all the exposure from Leah and Mike going clear, et cetera, done for prominent whales who are known to be Scientologists, right? For their social networks and their professional connections as well. It's like, ooh, you're a Scientologist. Whoa. You know. Yeah. No, I, I, I do think that there's some, some exposure there, but that's not something I, I really think I, I have enough, you know, perspective to discuss meaningfully. Fair enough. Just throwing it out there, isn't yeah, it? Sure. Um, okay. So let's, let's go back and let's talk about, you know, what causes organizations to collapse. Mm -hmm. And it's usually multiple issues at a time, multiple structural issues, people, money, you know, uh, available, available cash, competition, legal. It's not just one thing that causes an organization to really uh, become fatally wounded. Um, and the more complex it is, the more issues can be off and the more 
uh, the longer it can go before it sinks. And so, you know, I think uh, we talked about this. I think you talked about this in a couple of podcasts ago, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll go to it again. Uh, the, the cult that lived forever was called the Muggletonians. Yes. And this was actually, this actually started in 1650. You said it was 18 something, yeah, but it's actually I, 1650. And they lit the last Muggletonian died in 1979. So they lasted for over 300 years. And yet they never had more than maybe a thousand people at their peak. And they were never really a force in the world, um, you know, that, that was all that significant. And yet there they were. Um, another one uh, is the Shakers. The Shakers, I, you know, is not a, you know, they're a, a small religious sect. And at one point there were several thousand of them around the country, right? We know them for Shaker furniture and, you know, these, this lovely design of the, the artifacts that they built. But, you know, there's a handful of shakers today after the, the group was founded uh, 250, almost 300 years ago. Um, there's still three or four left in Maine today. And they survived despite the fact that celibacy was an essential requirement. So that was, you know, you talk about an impediment to recruiting. <laughs> right. They can't have kids. Yeah. No kids to join the Sea Org or the Shaper right, Org or whatever it is. Right. And so uh, and so these organizations have uh, lasted for a very long time. Yep. And yep. so, um, um, you know, actually, if I if I can contribute, um, sure. it's flat earth. Uh huh. I'll throw that out there as a as a as an example of, you know, something you think what I mean, it almost died off. It started the flat earth society. I mean, that goes back to the 1800s. Right. Trace the history of this. Right. It's a couple people. They build up this community. They build up this mailing list of a couple thousand people mm -hmm. at its peak. And yep. it looked like it was dead in the 70s and it got resuscitated and it and it built back up under a whole new management kind of a whole different set of people took yep. it over and it got a whole new life. And, and you know, a couple of years ago, not that many years ago, people were all over my plate freaking out about flat earth taking over the world. And I was like, OK, calm down, guys. It's not really that many people. But, you know, these things can can grow again and, and, and mm -hmm. try to kill flat earth. It just won't. It's an idea that just won't ever die. Yep. No, it's uh, that's true. Yeah. Um, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah. All right. So so let's let's look at another sort of factor that we want to think about um, in predicting organizational collapse. And one that I think has been pretty tempting to uh, whether you know it by the proper name or not. Uh, over the last couple of years, looking at Scientology's challenges. And that's what we call an exogenous shock versus an endogenous shock. So an en exogenous shock is something that comes upon an organization, that happens to an organization that's completely unable to, you can't, that you can't predict and uh, that you can't control. And, and these are the hardest things to deal with. And so we look at Scientology and then say, you know, um, that they have had a couple of exogenous shocks. And so, so, here's, so here's how I would differ, or here's how I would sort of define this a little bit further. Um, so an airline has, you know, airlines go and fly airplanes, and every so often one crashes. But a crash is not an exogenous shock, even if it comes from an outside circumstance, because it's bounded. The resolution of the problem is, is bounded and well understood. 
Um, airlines and the, the air, aircraft manufacturers and the subsystem manufacturers all have go teams and they operate out of very well-defined playbooks of what to do when a crash occurs. And so, you know, uh, a crash is a big mess. It's a tragedy for those who lose their lives or are injured. Um, it's a big economic loss, but it's something that's well-bounded and people know how to deal with. And so, so it's not, un, it's not an unpredicted for, and nobody knows what to do with this kind of a situation. Exactly. Right. And so, you know, to continue with the airline metaphor, COVID was absolutely an exogenous shock for an airline. So even though the airlines had been thinking about um, what happened, you know, what happens if a global pandemic gets loose, what happens to our business? Uh, they had been thinking about that a little bit from the SARS thing back, whatever that was, six or eight, however many years ago, mm-hmm. um, which was well contained. Um, and also from some Ebola, you know, limited release of Ebola outside its traditional, you know, fields in West Africa and stuff like that. So they've been thinking about it, but they didn't really have a, a playbook that would really encompass what happened with COVID. Um, but they survived. Yeah, I don't think anybody had a playbook for COVID. <laughs> Man. Not, not even close. And, oh. you know, a uh, number of people have been warning for years that if something got loose, it was going to be about this bad. But, you know, um, the, uh, the playbooks that existed, um, you know, the Trump, org- the Trump administration completely ignored a playbook that Obama had tried to put together. Uh, they just, they just like threw it out and like, who needs this jar- junk? And then sure right. enough, they did. Um, and so, and, and that's almost literally what happened. I mean, yep. they literally had binders of knowledge of here's what to do. Here's how we're going to deal with this. And they literally just threw it all out. Yep. They didn't show up for the meeting. Yeah. And uh, so, um, so anyway, so Scientology has had a lot of endogenous shocks internally caused things like Operation Snow White, supporting Danny Masters and all kind, you know, an endless list of those. Um, the Debbie Cook email was kind of half and half. Um, they couldn't control her sending out that email. She was largely out of Scientology. She was out of the Sea Org and was largely out of Scientology when she did it. Um, they could control their reaction to it. And of course, they screwed it up every possible way that you can imagine. But but the thing is, with an exogenous shock, the key thing is you can't rely on a playbook. Playbook can help you, but resilience is key. And that's being able to change and adapt. You know, you can't blindly follow a playbook. You can't you know, you have to wing it. And that's absolutely what Scientology is unable to do as an organization and what cults are in general unable to do because they're selling certainty. They've already got the answer. That's right. And I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, let me throw another thing out here specifically that occurred to me with Scientology in relation to this, this entire concept is Hubbard wrote a number of policies, a number of issues that make it crystal clear that Scientology will never be hurt by exogenous shocks. It is always only the internally created problems that will stop Scientology. It is never the world outside. And we can we just do what we're supposed to do and we will magically grow and succeed is basically the, the dogma. Interesting. Yeah. yeah not, I haven't thought about it that way. So in other words, that you don't have to pay attention to this stuff and, you know, I think that's always that that particular assumption is always, you know, cultic, right, that um, if the organization grows, it's because 
Scientology is perfect. If the organization doesn't grow, it's because the employees are screwing up. That's right. So exogenous shocks would be quickly translated into you're screwing up. Exactly. That's exactly where, and that's where they go a hundred percent of the time. Yep. Yep. So, um, so let's, so let's see. Um, I want to think about, by the way, the, the, you know, it's an interesting question and I don't know that we should discuss it here or we should even answer it, but it'd be fun to think about is was COVID a bigger exogenous shock than for Scientology than the internet? Um, and, and I think, you know, there's two parts to the internet. One is the anonymous protests that were generated by early social media. Yeah. And when all of a sudden you had more anons showing up globally outside Scientology facilities protesting, then you had Scientologists. All of a sudden, um, the freak out is due to the fact that Scientology can no longer scale to meet the outside world. That's that I think had to have been the biggest the biggest issue. Scientology formerly had because they had a lot of money, they could hire more PIs to hassle one person. So when it's one person versus the organization, Scientology had the advantage of scale. But all of a sudden, you had somebody that had you had a, a a group of people of average humans with no money that could raise thirty, forty, fifty thousand protesters. Right. All of a sudden, Scientology was wholly unprepared for that. Yeah, and it was the reality, the underlying reality of that all of a sudden we can't, we don't have the advantage of scale. The world has changed that I think has probably caused, you know, uh, uh, a paranoia that I don't think uh, Scientology has has really sorted through. Nope. Um, I agree. And I think the other thing of the style of the Anons that people are laughing at Scientology instead of afraid of it, um, I think was another legacy. But then, of course, you have the ongoing impact, which I think ultimately is far greater. Uh, gosh, was it really 14 years ago that the Anon protests happened? Yeah, 2008. Um, wow. And uh, you have, you know, mobile devices where it's like, I see Scientology, I see somebody body routing outside of a Scientology org, and I just say, Siri, what is Scientology? And 30 seconds later, I'm hightailing it out of there. That's right. Right. So that's the long term issue. Um, so, so it's then, a very interesting um, question. I, I actually would encourage anybody in the comments to contribute to that because I, I don't have a pat answer either. You know, the Internet versus COVID. These were these were both devastating events for Scientology. Yeah. So let's talk later about COVID. But I want to talk. To, so I wanted to talk, you know, sort of finish up the discussion of theoretical stuff with one other point. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a um, something I've been doing a lot with geopolitical analysis and economic uh, stuff. Um at, at work lately. And um, there's, most people tend to ignore the role of demographics in human affairs. And demographics move very, very slowly, but very powerfully, changes in population trends, whether that's birth rates, migration, uh, et cetera. And the people that do demographics say demography is destiny. And, and so there's a lot of people that watch this for for predictive power. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of interest on the fact that the Chinese population is going to be declining much faster than anybody expected based on recent uh, census data that came out not that long, a few months ago. Um, but I think that, um, and, and, and I think that ultimately, yes, that will mean the end of China as a rising global power if their population drops by half in the next 40 years, which looks likely. 
Um, but wow. on the way down, a yeah. lot, but but a lot can happen between now and then. Right. So so it's so it's you know we look at Scientology and we look at the fact that you know so much of their population is aging out. You know the hardcore members, the whales, the uh, the hardcore members, and so forth. And we look at um, you know the the overall membership population is declining, and certainly COVID's had an impact there. Um, and we can predict the end of the organization. And I think if you look at solely demographics and you don't look at the battlefield scenario of what Scientology is going to do to battle the demographic decline, which they have to be aware of in some in some degree. Um, you know, whether Miscavige likes to think about it or not, he's aware that the numbers are going nowhere but down. Um, Absolutely. He definitely, on a weekly basis, he knows exactly where they're at. Yeah. And so even if the money is still there, the body counts are, are going down. And, and so, you know, the demographics are definitely unfavorable for Scientology. But when you look at the degree to which they are unfavorable, that doesn't give you the power to say that the end is closer. Um, and, and so, you know, it's just, it's just, um, you know, that's a field as I I wanted to mention, just because I've been doing a lot of work on it myself and just, uh, really, you know, just saying that's, that's an area where I think people are overestimating decline based solely on demographic criteria. Okay. Got it. Um, yeah, because uh, like a point to to bring up with this is like we mentioned with the Shakers, I think you said earlier, right? Yeah. Where they are, they're not having kids, right? It's celibacy. Well, the Sea Org is the same way. You, can, yeah. you can't have kids in the Sea Org, right? So you can you can get people in, but they're not gonna grow through reproduction. <laughs> but that's the it. Level Scientologists and the staff can still have kids, but but not the Sea Org. Yeah, you know. Although, uh, you know, the, the decline of staff in the orgs and sending in Sea Org to, to run some of the uh, outer orgs, uh, you know, certainly is, that's, uh, that's choking off even the limited ability of the staff to reproduce. That's true. That's very true. Yeah. And it says something, the, the fact that they're even doing that now says an awful lot about, you know, how much they've had to pull in their flippers a little bit to cover these these areas that they just don't have the personnel for to deal with otherwise. Because there's... Yep. And they, they're only going to be able to pull that stunt so many times because there's only so many Sea Org members. Yep, exactly right. Yeah. So, um, okay, so let's think about um, let's think about Scientology. So we've been talking mostly about theoretical kind of issues about the the over optimism that we have of predicting the the timing or the causes of collapse of organizations. We talk about some of the errors that people make when they think about that. So, so I think this is time to move on to just say, let's talk about Scientology and, and let's talk about COVID. Um, so you've got a lot more data points from the people that you're in much more frequent touch with than I am about, you know, what's been going on. But I think, you know, at the top level, right, what's, what is entirely, what was certainly entirely predictable as the stories of the steps that the orgs uh, were taking started to leak out is that COVID came into rapidly came into contact or conflict with what cults do right cults sell certainty and so um you know and often that certainty is that the dogma whatever garbage dogma that they come up with they're selling certainty that it's right and you know usually the dogma is wrong but that's a talk a longer talk for a different day and so you know 
Scientology saw the opportunity, as I'm sure other people did, of saying, you know, we've got the solution and, and people would be expecting them to have the answer based on their, um, uh, you know, based on their, you know, this why people come to Scientology. Mm-hmm. But the thing is that COVID, uh, there was a lot of wrong science about COVID early on, you know, that it was transmitted on surfaces that, you know, that that went away almost immediately. When people realize that it was purely respiratory, you know, person to person transmission, it doesn't live very long, you know, on banisters and door handles and toilet seats. Um, but Scientology went out hard and fast and painted itself in a corner. And then the thing was that they couldn't say also, because they know that their population is going to be typically very anti-vax, very anti, um, you know, standard medicine, um, that they had to have the decon seven which is that toxic cleaning solution uh but we've also i think forgotten to mention you know lately they are also out there with ozone generators i think it was mm. and um you know which are quack remedies that um you know ozone does kill germs they do and they kill viruses very effectively the problem was that they were having these you know tabletop ozone generators and if you look at the amount of output um, was woefully in, insufficient to actually have any meaningful impact on viruses, even if they were living on surfaces. Right. Um, so there was a whole bunch of other quack stuff that they that they got stapled to. And then you have Miscavige amping up the verbiage with the planetary bow bait nonsense. Um, you know, us versus them. Look at our look at how special and smart we are. That's right. And so now he can't, as long as COVID is in the world, he can't change. He can't dial down the rhetoric and he looks more and more out of touch. So, you know, Actually, you know something that occurs to me right now is that 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 line, right, that that, that he wrote in this issue, uh, the whole COVID thing is planetary bulbit up, oh, planetary bulbit. It's at it again. That's exactly the attitude that is demonstrated over and over again about these ex- exogenous shocks is up ah, that whatever. They just write it off. It's just, uh, and had COVID only lasted a month or two, they would have weathered that just fine. Yep. And yep. they've been proven right that it was just, uh, we could ignore this, no big deal. You know, but that kind of thing, that kind of bad policy, you you, you know, you get away with it until you can't, until you don't, right? Yep. <laughs> and you're just lucking out is really what you're doing. You're just whistling past the graveyard. And that's what Scientology has been doing from yep. that one. Yeah. And, you know, so like, you know, um, my, my employer and a lot of others said, you know, we, I mean, I look back at the emails we got from management, you know, from upper management about COVID in the early days. It's like, okay, we're all going to be working at home for a couple of weeks. And we'll probably, you know, when this wave is passed, we'll be opening up the offices. Um, you know, it's like, it was laughably naive. On the other hand, it was all in a culture of, we're going to go out and we're going to get the best advice we can. We're not going to try to figure this out ourselves because we're not epidemiologists. Right. You know, we're, we're a company that makes money and, you know, we're going to use the best resources we have. And we're probably, you know, the management's message was from day one, you know, our response to this is likely to change and we don't know where it's going to go. And so we all have to stay resilient and flexible and just roll with it as best we can. Yep, exactly. As opposed to the certainty of we got this figured out, 
And at that point, Miscavige has handcuffed himself to the deck rail of the Titanic. Exactly. And that's what happened. That's, that's, that's it, to this day, it's still happening. Yeah. And so, you know, you have, so you have, I, I think there was, wasn't there something that in one of your podcasts, uh, Catherine uh, said recently that, uh, that they're wearing the metal off of the, the plating off of the doorknobs by decontaminating them. And they have what, what did, what did she say? about the the amount of effort in an org, how many people, what percentage of the, the staff were doing nothing but decontaminating things? Oh yeah, it was like three or four staff full time in these in these organizations. And these are these are organizations that have maybe 30 or 40 staff. So you got like 10% of them just fogging rooms that nobody's walking in. Yeah. Four or five times a day. And yeah. and they they spend millions of dollars on these buildings refinished wood, beautiful metal plating, and it's all going to rot because the industrial strength cleaner that they're overusing is literally eating into the material. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what's interesting, by the way, is let's look at another example where uh, you have a cult-like problem with COVID, and that is the People's Republic of China. Um, as we're talking, uh, they, they have this zero COVID policy to prove that the Chinese political system is superior uh, as opposed to allowing a million people to die in the US, which is a horrific thing, and I'm not in favor of it. Uh, I don't wanna sound like I'm in favor of it in, in making this argument, uh, but, but China said, well, we're superior to the decadent and, and uh, declining West. Um, we're gonna make sure that nobody dies of COVID in China. Now, of course, one important part of that is lying about the statistics, but we won't go into that. Um, what they're doing is they're locking down anytime anybody tests positive for COVID, they lock down their, you know, neighborhood. And so all of the big cities of China are undergoing various lockdowns. And as soon as they, um, they get it under control, they bring it back and, or, you know, somebody gets it and then they go back into lockdown and it's going to cause a massive decline in GDP, particularly exports. It's going to cause major financial woes and the population is pissed because, when you lock down Shanghai, that's a huge center of the economy. It's a lot of well-off middle-class and upper-middle-class professionals, and they're being treated like animals. They're not getting food. And why are they doing that? It's because the government can't admit that the Chinese vac developed vaccines don't work. Right. They can't go out and buy mRNA vaccines to the West, uh, from the West to just go ahead and... and um, you know, just go ahead and give it's everybody like saving a... face is more important to them than the actual safety and security of their people. Yeah. And, and proving that the government, you know, has their backs and, and, you know, I think enough people, there are plenty of people out there that, in China that know the score, but the thing is that, you know, president Xi has created this cult of personality that he can do no wrong, that he's the smartest guy ever kind of the L Ron Hubbard of, uh, you know, governments and, um, you know, he's, uh, you know, got to show this strong leadership and he's taken the country off a cliff, right? That they're going to have a GDP decline for the first time in 40 years. And a lot of people are pissed. And, uh, um, you know, the, the problem from, from the standpoint of the West is if we can't count on their production of, you know, stuff that we want to buy from them, we're going to Vietnam or Indonesia or Malaysia or, all sorts of other countries that want, you know, to handle our business. Right. 
And right. so, we're, so we're seeing what could be a, a real shift in power dynamics on the global stage because of this whole situation. Yeah, and the, this cult-like certainty that they can handle COVID, a certainty that's that's laughable to those of us who believe in science. Right. That's so, right. so where um, you see Scientology is the microcosm, you see China is like this more macro picture exactly. of this. Exactly. So now, so here's the thing, right? You know, I think you're, this is your cue to talk about what you know people have been telling you in terms of numbers that you know a huge percentage of the the um, the public are, you know, not coming into orgs for services and, you know, yeah. may not, you know, I, as I, please correct me. I, I thought it was, you, you were saying something like a third of the public are like out of touch now. Yeah. Just that's that's what we're hearing. I've between Catherine, the insider and other sources I have, they're all kind of corroborating one another right now. And, and this is just the best data I've got. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't have Scientology demographics, right. But, but what the sure. data, the observation we have, is that upwards of a third of the membership is outright refusing to come back into the churches right now, to the orgs. And that's, that's kind of across the boards. Uh, between mandated, mandated quarantine times and the masks and having to wear gloves and the Decon 7 and all these other nonsensical policies they've put in place, um, I don't think Miscavige personally is aware of just how conspiracy-minded his demographic, his Scientologist group is. I, I, I just don't think he's really got a clue because his moves smacked right into it. And that's where the outrage is coming from with this third of the population of Scientology mm -hmm. right now is they're just like, what are you talking about? I have to wear masks and gloves. COVID's not even a real thing. Yeah, exactly. It's all fake what you, news. What are you talking about? You know? Yeah, why are you vaccinating the Sea Org? Right. You know, they you know, couldn't again. even tell, they couldn't even let the public know they were vaccinated because it started coming up that this was a thing. And they were like, oh yeah, okay, we can't talk about this. And, and it's, and, and this is not, this part of the problem is not even the exogenetic part. I mean, this is, this is internally created. They, this conspiracy mindset has been used for decades in Scientology to make all kinds of money. Mm -hmm. So now it's biting them in the butt. Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh, you could just sort of, uh, uh, you could just sort of sit back and smile. And, oh, it's and, such karmic justice. I have, to, yeah. I have to laugh. Yeah. Yeah. So now, so, so I think, by the way, one important thing to uh, to take away from that is we may be seeing a third of the population or a third of the public refusing to come in at the moment, mm -hmm. but I would uh, caution against saying that that's the same as a third of the people have blown. Um, uh, me too. Me too. That is something I've been wondering about is how much work is it going to take to get those people back and how many of them are permanently gone? Impossible to say right now. Yeah. Now, I mean, they've got to, they've got to get out of COVID mode and take off the gloves and stop the decon seven. Right. Um, you know, yeah, there's things about, Hey, you know, Hey, the quarantine on the free winds is down to five days and you know, we're, it's free now and all that. So they're, they're, they're trying to, you know, signal that, but I, I don't think there are, you know, we, we won't know for another year or two, I don't think. No. And it'll be interesting to see. I, I am personally curious as to, um, since I have been broadcasting this with a bullhorn for the last month now on my channel, and I, I think I'm pretty much the only source of knowledge on this stuff. 
um, in terms of a public venue, because Leah's podcast isn't going right now. They're they're mid, they're between seasons, and you know there isn't really any other major site except Tony's blog, of course, which is also talking about this. Um, I'm wondering, you know, how long until Scientology calls it quits with a great big bullhorn is like no more COVID restrictions. It's all canceled. It's all good. Everybody come back in. You know, I'm predicting that this is going to happen sooner than later at this point, mm -hmm. given how much we've been talking about it. Yeah, I think I think that's probably right. Um, I I don't know if they're going to be able to just say, "Hey, we're totally open," um, because there's still an element of you know we were wrong. Yes, um, that's right. But I think it's um, uh, I think you're right that they are going to pull the trigger and they'll figure out something. Yeah, um, they're they're just figuring out the spin right now. Probably is where it's yeah. at. Yeah. So so I think you know. The question is, okay, so what what are the impact of COVID in terms of member counts? And the answer is, yeah, a lot of people aren't coming in. Uh, don't know how many of those are blowing. But the second is, what are what is the impact on the finances? And you know, I've done work in the past about you know how much money do they typically pull in in a year? And the best number that I've been able to come up with is somewhere between two hundred million to three hundred million. And three hundred is maybe a little bit on the high side. Um, Maybe a third of that is IAS, maybe a third of that is flag, and maybe a third of that is everything else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So COVID could well, have currently, you know, and now and when and under that umbrella of everything else, by the way, is we have the whole ideal org, you know, give us money to renovate the buildings thing. And that's been the scam for the last 20 years. Yeah, I've I've sort of tended to think of that as IAS as opposed to you know sort of program based revenue. Oh, okay, yeah, no, the the ideal. I'll I'll differentiate those two things because okay. because the um because the priority in an in a given area is um, ideal org money, right? Get the money to renovate the trip, the the building. Once that's done, now then the IAS comes swooping in with you know membership, membership, membership money. Give us money, give us money, give us money for that. Okay. And more recently, I'm hearing um, now they now it's not even those two things. Now it's just literally just give us money. Yeah, you know, under any no pretense at all. It's just give us your money. Yeah, well, I think that's you know what you're seeing with a lot of uh, cultic organizations under financial pressure. The JWs are being very similar, yeah. right? That instead of money staying in the local congregations, it all gets rolled up lines now ownership of the buildings is now up lines um it's not at the local level um oh i guess they took a page from scientology on that how interesting well i think it's of any organization that's under financial pressure mm. i think um, we'll see that with uh um you know southern baptists which are going to start getting suits for sexual abuse uh you know i i think any organization you know religious uh -huh. or cultic organization is going to start to do that cool. um so, so the thing is that let's say that COVID has cut their cut their number by a hundred million a year. Um, they're still able to remain profitable. Um, you know, they they there are some costs around the Sea Org labor, even though the direct salaries paid to the Sea Org are trivial, right? Feeding and housing and busing them securely from yeah. you know the motels to to flag, um, that's real cash out. Um, you know, it might be six hundred or a thousand dollars a person a month. Um, so you're looking at, you know, 40, you know, 30, 40, 50 million a year in staff costs. Um, right. And let's be clear that those costs are the costs that are covered by the local ground level 
organizations. Yeah, or or flag or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that's those are the costs that that are borne by the local right churches and organizations. It's not money coming down from Miscavige's level to subsidize them. Right. So so you know the point being that I think I think they are able to run close enough to break even that they're not dipping into the reserves. Yeah. And you know my best number on the reserves is probably somewhere around 2 billion and you know it could be a, a nudge higher. Yeah. Um, but it's not 14 billion. Um, mm -hmm. and so I don't think they're dipping into the reserves. Um, so, um, you know, they're probably less profitable, but I think they're still, um, you know, I think they're still economically viable without, you know, uh, wholesale dipping into the reserves to try to keep things, uh, keep things going. Okay. So, um, so I think that, you know, COVID is a, is a huge disruption. But I don't think it's financially devastating, um, and the switch is, you know, the the switch is still the question is still open as to whether it is devastating in terms of uh, of membership. Um, I will, yeah, I'll th I I think I, if I might contribute this much, I will say sure. that um, I think that if you look at the distribution of the money, I think you're looking at, you know, the the great the concentration of wealth, of course, is at Miscavige's level. It mm -hmm. goes up, 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 right? And at the lower levels, I think we've seen, I think we have seen some devastation in terms of why these, you know, th these these buildings have been locked up for a while. They're not delivering the services they need to deliver to make, you know, good money. And with the Chase Wave canceled just before COVID, that whole pipeline of 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 basically free money that they were getting for a couple for about five year period dried up. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, I think if I were looking at it from from maybe I don't know if I, if I were going to diagram the concentric circles of Scientology, <laughs> I'd say they're they're pretty dry on the edges, but they might still be flush and wet on the inside. If that is a yeah. silly way of saying it. So let's so let's talk about the chase wave. Yeah. Um, okay. So so the thing is, I I read that and you know all the coverage of that and was absolutely stunned. Um, because that is a massive, uh, massive uh, case of case of fraud. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's let's first off, um, let's uh, um, let's think about you know what's the legal um, issue, and the legal issue is that this is a very complex case, um, and it may be too complex um, for the uh, uh, for the government to go after. Mm -hmm. Um, so the very first thing I would say is don't expect to see Miscavige perp walked out of flag over this. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I just think that there are too many cutouts, um, and there are too many other things that would have to happen in order for that to, to take place. And I just don't see that happening. Okay. Um, as, as delightful as it is to envision that, I just don't think that's, um, realistic. Um, I think they may go after individual uh, defendants, uh, they may go after, uh, you know, sort of first level, uh, regs, um, you know, Scientology may be seen as having a, you know, a, a guilty conscience because they took all the regs and fired them. And, you know, they, they tried oh, yeah, to bury this around. Right. So, so there's, you know, so there's definitely, there's a, certainly there is a chance that, um, that there's prosecution because this is a coordinated fraud where, you know, the organization was really, um, you know, pushing it 
they were pushing people to uh, uh, encourage customers to, you know, uh, sign up for these cards and they were coordinating knowledge. So it is, you know, it is a racketeering sort of, of, of situation, mm. but, um, but then you say, okay, um, so how big might this have been? Right. And, and so if you look at some of the numbers that were being bandied about of, you know, that people are opening tens of thousands of dollars worth of cards, yeah. um, then you say, okay, so if we take the, the number of maybe 15,000 active Scientologists and maybe half of those in the US, um, and we say that maybe, so that's, you know, 8,000 Scientologists in the US. And let's say they maybe did this a quarter to a third of the time. You have two to 3,000 people that were sucked up in this. Mm -hmm. You have maybe 25, and if you say, okay, maybe $25,000 is the average take. Mm -hmm. um, you basically are looking at 50 to 75 million over five years. So you're looking at a million dollars a month. Mm -hmm. um, what, you, what you think about is that, you know, the government would have to put a lot of money into prosecuting that. When there's $75 million in play, um, they may not do anything other than just pick off easy meat where they can. Right. Especially my lawyer friend tells me as well that because they acted or seemed to act with speed and ferocity to, you know, reorganize and take all the people who are doing things off the line, Chase has canceled Scientology's ability to use Chase anymore. Chase Bank, you're you're yeah. you're you're done. But but um, consider this though that Chase is going to report this to the card company, you know, the card issue or the the card networks, mm -hmm. uh, so Visa and Mastercard. So their experience is not going to be unique. They're not going to be able to. Scientology is not going to be able to simply say, "Okay, cross out Chase and replace it with Wells Fargo." Not going to happen. That's right. That's exactly right. Just like they had to, that, but but this is history repeating itself, because I know when I worked at the advanced organization of Los Angeles, the the where they deliver the OT level stuff, we couldn't take Amex for a very similar backstory mm -hmm. reason. Yeah, you know. So yeah, this, although Amex is does, does catch up with them, yeah. but it won't result necessarily in just to finish that thought in criminal prosecution. Mm -hmm. But but when you think about it. Um, the card, the card companies themselves are going to learn from this and, um, they're actually very, very good at learning from, uh, sophisticated frauds. Mm -hmm. So here's an example. It's an oldie, but a goodie. And this shows you a little bit about what kind of, uh, pattern detection that they're good at. Mm -hmm. So if you want to get your card turned off, here's how to do it. Take a card that you haven't used in a week or two and go buy gas and uh, then go and have lunch at Chili's or Applebee's or Burger King or something. Uh, but, but probably go have lunch at a regular restaurant. Then go to Best Buy and buy a flat screen TV. Guarantee you 100% that you will be on the phone with your credit card company because that charge at Best Buy for a TV will be denied because that absolutely looks like a fraudulent pattern. Somebody stole a card. The first thing they do is they go to an unattended terminal for a small transaction, right? You don't have to have somebody look at the card and say, gee, you know, you're not Debbie Schneider. You know, you're a six foot tall guy. Right. And I don't think your name is Debbie. Let's see some ID, right? So an unattended terminal, 
and just to find out if the card's been turned off or not. And then, uh, then you try, you know, a little bit bigger, you know, forty or fifty dollar charge to see if there's some room on the card, and then you go for the big score. And if you do that one after the other in that sequence, I guarantee you that you will get your card um, turned off and you'll have to call them and uh, identify yourself to get it turned back on. Right. Um, and so that's a very simple fraud example compared to what they're doing. So now the thing is, in the, in the wake of the chase wave, they know the names of a couple thousand Scientologists. And so anytime that those guys go to apply for credit, it's going to be flagged. By, by not just Chase, but MasterCard and Visa. And well, and let's be clear, Chase has actually canceled the accounts of every Scientologist already. Oh, they have, okay. They have. If you had, right. if you ever had a charge on your Chase account to the, a vendor that was a Church of Scientology, you don't have a Chase card anymore. Okay, very interesting. So, uh, and so you'll probably have a real tough time getting credit. And that's going to, I think, uh, get some people really, you know, the, the the rank and file type members, not the whales, but that'll get the rank and file members thinking about, you know, these guys really have screwed me for life. It's not just the money that they racked up on my cards that I can't get back, but now they have, uh, you know, I'm not going to be able to get a mortgage. I'm not going to be able to do that. Yeah, and exactly. the other thing that they can do now is that now that they also have those identities, if people have other cards from other issuers and they start pumping huge amounts of money onto it, um, they'll be able to detect whether Scientology is using cutouts or other means to get around the fact that Scientology's merchant numbers have been, you know, merchant accounts have been terminated. Mm. And so if Scientology tries anything like this again, they are going to be um, detected fairly quickly because there's a huge knowledge base, there's a huge database of people that participated in this uh, that aren't necessarily going to be charged criminally, but you know those people are marked for life, and their charges are going to be watched for life. Exactly. Yeah, the world we live in now, when it comes to financial controls, is a much more tightly regulated and controlled world than the one Hubbard came up in. Yeah, and yeah. you know, and you think about um, you know the 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 level of surveillance. Um, you know, fraudsters think they're pretty smart guys. But there are a lot of very, very expensive programmers at MasterCard and Visa that are looking at sophisticated network frauds um, because they've already solved all the easy frauds like the one I was talking about with buy gas, buy lunch, buy a TV. Um, they've already figured those out. Um, well, this might be an opportune moment to actually detail a couple of the specifics that we have here of what those what they were doing when we're call, we're sitting here calling it the chase wave and it was a series of di of different things that were done um and i want to go over them real fast because i've never I, i've interviewed people we've talked about this but i haven't really broken it down this way so let me just do this really fast sure um because there's really only a couple bullet points here but it's fascinating it's really really interesting how they came up with different avenues or vectors of approach to get more money out of these credit card companies. And the Chase Wave, you had multiple cards applied for on the same day uh, before the bank's records were updated. This yep. made it so that the person who qualified for a $10,000 limit would get three cards with a $10,000 limit, then merge them and have a $30,000 limit, see? Um, you'd make up income figures in the credit card applications to increase the credit limits. 
They were signing up for cards for people either while they were there or on the phone or without them knowing. Just straight up applying for cards in people's names. That's absolutely fraudulent. Mm-hmm. Um, credit refresh. And it's a little complicated, but the way it was explained to me here is um, Joe has 30K in debt and a 600 credit score. Bill has just gotten a Chase Wave card for $30,000 and it's empty. So Joe does a balance transfer of his entire debt to Bill's new Chase card. Next month, when the credit scores are calculated, Joe has paid off all his debts, has free credit, so his credit score massively jumps. He uses his new credit score to apply for more cards, maybe even Chase Wave cards, and gets $40,000 in new credit. Bill balance transfers the $30,000 back to Joe's new card. Now Joe has forty dollars in new credit. So it's just back and forth swiping to game the system with your credit rating. So all of these and combinations of these things. And then um, not only were those balance transfers being done, but there were other actions being done all under this term of bridging loans where one Scientologist would loan another guy money based on the idea that money, the credit was coming in. And sometimes it didn't. And then, you know, the guy was left hanging and, and that creates ill repute and bad blood and all of that as well. Yeah. So you're pissing off your whales or your sort of somewhat junior whales by, uh, by having them, uh, you know, loan money to somebody who didn't get the credit from the chase wave. Exactly. Not, yeah. Good move. Exactly. But, the, but in the excitement of all of this and all of this was, was originated, all of this was figured out and exported around the world from Los Angeles, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. So. so, you know, here's, I mean, a couple of reactions to all of that. Um, first off, you know, in particular, things like understanding that um, you can open multiple accounts on the same day and the system doesn't process that or doesn't, you know, register that in real time, but that it registers it nightly. Mm-hmm. That's very, very detailed knowledge of Chase's internal uh, systems and procedures. Mm-hmm. So this is not the sort of thing that some, you know, Sea Org Reg figured out by themselves. This is sounds like something that somebody was very plugged into, you know, how these kinds of crime networks operate, you know, these fraud networks operate, um, that they're using a playbook that was developed and, and already successful by somebody else. Interesting. Um, and very possible, you know, very possible. And, and I will say, though, that, um, you know, it, it's 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 hard to underestimate the craftiness of a Sea Org member who is under the gun to get his stats up by Thursday. Too. Yeah, but it's, it would take a lot of experimentation to figure that out and to figure that out that it's a, uh, an attribute of Chase and not somebody else. Absolutely. Um, you know, I'm very surprised to hear that because. Most systems these days do do real-time updates, and if you apply for a card, you know, it's in there, and, you know, you're not going to be able to apply twice for an offer or something. So mm-hmm. that's, um, you know, but, but I, I, just think, I just think the Chase Wave, they were plugging into, somebody taught them, somebody who was a, an, a, a knowledgeable scammer taught them how to do that. Fair enough. It's entirely possible. Um, but but it'll be interesting to see uh, if this does actually turn out to be a jail time for anybody in the in the organization. Yeah. Cool. So, so those so, are the specifics well, oh, of what they were doing there, 
And so, um, where we're let's take we? a look at yeah. Let me just take a, a one other point that comes uh, comes just to mind, yeah. uh, which is all of this Chase Wave is not about. I, I don't think it's about IAS donations. It's about getting money on account for services. It was. It was all about service sales because because the Scientologists, the public Scientologists were told by Sea Org members who they believe as authority figures that this was all legit. Mm -hmm. They were pumped. There was so much excitement being generated over this that people were flying into Los Angeles to, you know, take part in this amazing thing and get their auditing and finally go clear and get to OT and all of that. There was a lot of enthusiasm in the Scientology world over this whole until the house of cards finally started to come down right that's right in 2019 that's right so um so what's interesting is that this is you know that they had to know uh either the people that introduced this they had to know this was criminal fraud um you can't you know in the back of your head if, if you've been in the world you know you know this is wrong and you may not know exactly how much jail time it's going to earn you but you have to know you're you're risking jail to do this. Mm -hmm. So the, the the question is, were sales of services so bad that somebody said it's worth taking the risk, you know, for for me individually and for the organization and for a bunch of my friends in order to keep our stats up? And the answer to that would I would say would be a resounding yes. Um, and, and again, this is history repeating itself with Scientology. You can go back in time and find purposefully bad checks being written, you know, that didn't have the money covering yeah. them yet, and they were cashed. We saw that yeah. in the 70s. We saw credit unions being put together in the in the late 70s. All kinds of crazy stuff going on with within the world of Scientology um, to make that money. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I think the thing that happened was just in terms of the precursor to this is this is this all started when the Sea Org took over Los Angeles Org, mm. the Los Angeles, the L.A. Org. Right. They, they, they sent a bunch of Sea Org guys in there and it was just Sea Org staff now. And it was get to work, get making money. Golden Age of Tech 2. This thing has to be a success. And it's on you guys to make it a success. And and. If you're not making money, you better figure it out. You better figure it out. That's the kind of direction you get from management in Scientology. You better figure it out. You know, so make it go right. That's right. Make it go right. If they, you know, that's the uh, that's the ultimate supreme test. You know, is uh, Thetan's ability to make it go right. So they were making it go right, and everybody was enthusiastically excited about how much it was going right for a few years. Until this all, like we said, caught up with them. And so it blows up in 2019 and then COVID happens in 2020. That's a That's major right. one-two punch. That's right. That's so, right. yeah. So I, you know, I think the the takeaway is I think we can root for people to go to jail for this, but I don't think we want to count on, uh, I don't think we want to uh, treat that as, as a given. No. Um, it could very well happen, but um, at the very least, I think we can be fairly confident that that this sort of credit card fraud on this scale has been pretty much choked off. Yep. That's right. Yeah. Um, and internally moves made so that it never happens again. Now, yeah. how long that's going to hold out for until a, you know, fresh wave of, of, of criminally minded people come along. Who's to say, 
but um, but for now, that that practice has absolutely been killed. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know you mentioned that that Amex was a target a while ago, mm-hmm. and the thing is, Amex operates their own proprietary network, and so they're likely behind. Uh, and and especially if you go back in time, they're likely behind Mastercard and Visa on fraud. You know, Mastercard and Visa between them run a billion charge transactions a day. They have a lot of data to sort through that they can sort through looking for patterns and they have the, the horsepower and the, the brain power to, to figure out ways to do that. Amex didn't. So if you have now been desperate enough that you've moved up from the relatively farm team Amex network to try to commit fraud on MasterCard and Visa and you've gotten shut down, you got really nowhere else to go. Good point. Good point. And that could spell some real trouble for them coming in the next few years because credit's always been the, the, the magic carpet ride for Scientology. You know, Hubbard's policies talk about how you shouldn't use credit, but that's never been the practice in the real world with Scientology. You know, people go up the bridge on credit. Yep. So if they can't get it, they can't go up the bridge because the, the prices are the prices and they're not going to come significantly down. Yeah. And uh, guess what? The cost of credit's going up, whether it's credit cards or home equity loans, right? With the Fed interest rate, uh, you know, interest rates going up, um, mm-hmm. right? You know, the mortgage market is uh, is cooling pretty rapidly right now in terms of the number of transactions going on because, uh, because of the rates. And we are not likely to see, you know, 3% uh, fixed, you know, 30-year fixed mortgages again in our lifetimes, I don't think. Wow. So we're seeing, so we can, so I, so would it be accurate that we could predict fairly reliably that there's some lean times ahead for Scientology, at least at that level? I think in terms of, you know, getting people to take out loans for more, um, for more services, yes. Um, I think that, you know, we can predict reasonably what's likely already happening, which is a shift back to donation and status-based sorts of things, you know, especially as events can crank up again, but even without that, uh, just, you know, just much more in the way of, of milking the whales. And I think that, you know, one, this, this sort of is a good segue into one thing to think about is the whole idea of how does Scientology survive? And the answer is that they change the mission, right? We, we tend to have this bias of thinking about Scientology as a rational business. And businesses, you have to grow. If you simply lay, you know, stagnant where the revenue is the same every year in dollars, well, as inflation goes off, you're getting smaller and smaller and smaller and less and less relevant and less and less effective. Um, so, so businesses need to grow and they typically need to grow both sales and profits. But Scientology doesn't have to do that. They have the reserves and they don't have to grow. But, you know, so we, we tend to look at Scientology and say, well, membership is shrinking. You know, they've been through this, um, you know, COVID. So revenue, you know, sales are shrinking. Um, and like any, you know, at some point in a business, revenue shrinks long enough, you have to finally just say, I'm done. But Scientology doesn't have to do that. Right. And, and so if Miscavige redefines the focus and the mission of Scientology away from expanding you know, all of the talk about expansion in a broad sense um, and that it's really, you know, that he's really focused on uh, protecting a couple of things that are not growth in expansion, then he can last for a very long time indeed. 
And I think those two things are um, the whales and the status-based system. So he has to maintain just enough of a, a, a front of orgs that are viable, you know, but, but eventually they're going to be down to one or two people in an org. They're not really going to be able to do any services and they're going to go to an appointment system so that if you're a whale, you want to come into Cincinnati and do something, uh, you have to have an appointment and then they fly in a bunch of people to make it look busy. And I hope you don't notice that, that the same people in Cincinnati that audited you are the same people that when you go to Clearwater are auditing you and that they always seem to be at whatever org you visit. That's right. right. Or they might drop the pretense of that outer org entirely because, you know, as they've been pulling in their flippers, they have to decide where are we going to send Sea Org people to man this up and where are we going to start closing doors? Because with COVID, the precedent was already set that they literally closed orgs. Yeah. And that was, I just cannot stress enough how unthinkable that was 10 years ago when I was in. It's, it is, that is indeed, um, you know, a, a red line that's been crossed. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think it's one where it's going to be a while before they can craft a message that's going to be tolerable to people yeah. uh, that says, hey, remember the $40 million that you worked so hard to raise to rehab the Cincinnati org or the, you know, Kansas City org or whatever? Well, we just closed it and we're keeping all the money. And uh, now you got to come to flag and tough. That's right. And that's basically what it'll come down to. But they'll probably they'll they'll stick some spin on it that will convince a few people at least. Well, you know, hard to say. Let's take yeah. a conservative view and let's say that they're going to keep the orgs going um, long, long past their sell by date before they have to confront that because yep. it's the whales that gave to the orgs. Um, but I think, you know, if you if you say, okay, well, what's the, what's the number that they most like most have to predict and, or excuse me, most have to protect. I think it's the staff count. Um, if you look at what Miscavige gets out of the organization, he's not running Scientology as a babe farm. You know, it is not, you know, it is not about having large numbers of nubile, young, willing females that, uh, for him to have sex with. Right. Um, he hides from the world. Um, you know, and like Hubbard, who was terrified of sex, uh, you know, he Hub, while there was plenty of sexual misbehavior in Scientology, it wasn't Hubbard out nailing the messengers. Correct. That's right. And Miscavige is demonstra. I mean, just from every single report we've got, and it literally every one, there's just he's just not a sexual predator. He's a yep. violent predator. Yes. And what is he, what is it that feeds him? It's abuse of the staff. Mm -hmm. It's having a giant organization of people that are all terrified of him. Yep. And it's uh, what's called financial domination of the members. It's that pain and suffering when he's gotten them to pay more money they can afford and that, that they have harmed themselves uh, significantly by, you know, whatever they've done with the chase wave, right? That, you know, that, that people live with that harm and that memory and that he can still keep them coming back. That's right. Um, and so it's the financial cruelty to the membership and it's the uh, um, terrorizing of, of the staff and having the staff, you know, by, by being out of the way and mysterious, you know, and when he pops in, everybody just like loses their shit, you know, when he right. shows up at random. So, 
So that's what he's in it for. And in order for that to work, he's got to have staff. And that's more important than having new members coming in and having growth figures and so forth. Um, and he's got to have a small number of people that he can dominate and manipulate financially. And that's, that's really the whales. That's and right. I think, you know, the, the, the thing that I still think is one of the most interesting and most significant pieces of writing about the future of Scientology um, is a post by Jeff Augustine writing under the name of Jay Swift. And it was on ESMB in 2008, right around the time of the Anons. And he called it Monastery Scientology. Um, and Monastery Scientology was a prediction that, you know, Miscavige was going to give up on trying to bring in, you know, generic new rank and file members. He was going to cater only to the whales. He was going to retreat to Los Angeles, St. Hill, and, um, and Clearwater. And to, and while some of the specific predictions aren't, uh, aren't in fact happening, the general idea of Scientology retreating from the world and being a, a, a religion that waits hand and foot on a small number of whales, that's very much alive. And I think it's, a, it's still viable today, and it's something that everybody should really read. So maybe Absolutely. I'll post a link to it. Yeah, in, great. In the show notes. Yeah, because I've got that here. And and it is. It's actually it's very it was actually very prescient in some ways, considering when it was written. Um, you really did do a good job on this article. So I do I do recommend you all check it out. Um, I'm going to, you know, and I'll throw out one other thing there, just since I'm thinking about it right now that I've that I've, I've really not talked too much about it because it's purely conjectural on my part. But given the, the, the opportunities here, it's not inconceivable that whales could be, you know, blackmailed or could be coerced um, into giving more, more and more and more money at that level because of the secrets they divulge or the information that is made available to Scientology yeah. by them. You know, that's yeah. not unthinkable. No, I think that the, the pressure on them is going to go up. But I think the offset to that pressure is going to be the personal service that they would get uh, when they move back to the Clearwater area. And we've clearly seen Tom Cruise uh, selling off a number of his properties. I think uh, he's the ranch in Telluride, Colorado has been on sale for a while. I think he's out of New York. Uh, I think his place in Beverly Hills, I don't know if that's sold, but I, I, you know, he's been pretty much jettisoning his entire real estate portfolio, stuff that he's owned for a long time. Hmm. Um, you've got Travolta who is just like 90 miles up the road in Ocala with his private airport has now got a place in Clearwater. You've got Kirstie Alley, who's been in LA and, and, and in Maine now in Clearwater. So a lot of the, a lot of these people, and I think uh, in the last couple of weeks, Michael Pena's uh, also made the move. Oh, so that's you've got, very interesting. So you've got a lot of folks that either now have second homes in Clearwater or, uh, or now making primary residence in Clearwater. And that's interesting. And so I think there's a, I think there's a real, you know, there's a real trend there. Yeah. And you say, okay, so what is, what is worth, you know, the potential to get, you know, ripped raw by wedges showing up on your doorstep on any given night because you now live in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And, and I think it's that waiting on hand and foot and being told that you're a special person. And, and so if you look at, so here's a, here's a fun number. Um, one of the things that cruise ships do is they manage their number of uh, crew members per guest very carefully. And so a luxury cruise line might have as much as one crew member for every um, like two guests. 
and the more budget ones were going to have like one crew member for every like five guests. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so a, a luxury cruise line is somebody who's spending, uh, you know, and, and you've got crews, you know, you've got crew members that don't touch the guests. You know, you've got engineers, bridge people, you know, cooks and so forth. They don't directly interact with the guests. But but you in, in Clearwater, let's say you have 500 whales and you've got about 2000 staff keeping that operation going. You've got a lot of labor that can provide waiting on hands and foot to whales, not just when they're in the, um, you know, not just when they're in the, the, uh, the flag building, but when they're at home too, you know, that, and, and you're essentially having people like, uh, like has been rumored and Tony Ortega and others have published that, you know, Tom Cruise's entourage is filled with people who report back to Miscavige. That's right. But, Why so would think, that not apply to the other whales? Exactly. And so okay. now you have you know, Scientology, the helpful Sea Org guy that that runs your laundry to the dry cleaners. And if all of a sudden you stop your laundry at the dry cleaners and you don't let the Sea Org guy in anymore, that's going to be noted. Right. And it's going to be seen as a potential risk of disaffection or, mm. you know, whatever it is. And and so, you know, they've got the labor pool out there to really keep an eye on that small number of whales that they need in order to keep the monastery Scientology going for a long time and to keep delivering the emotional benefits that Miscavige at the top wants. That's right. That's right. Because the the secret sauce here, let's remember, by the way, uh, always keep in mind that the secret sauce with Scientology is the auditing. Mm -hmm. That's that's the euphoria creating, inducing process. And it's a repetitive process. You just keep going back for more. It's an addictive process. And there is nothing special about Kirstie Alley or Michael Pena or Tom Cruise, for that matter, that that somehow makes them immune from that addictive process. Mm-hmm. And that's what keeps people coming back for more. So I, I mentioned blackmail earlier or influence peddling earlier as a potential here. But let's always remember that they don't really have to go there that often when they had, when they can just get you addicted to these these dopamine hits, right? These serotonin yep. hits. So this, and, and this, you've this, got at the core, if, if people are like, well, how come? Why do they keep coming back? That's why. Mm-hmm. It's powerful stuff. Yeah. And, and so I think if you have people that can interact with you and serve you mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, I, I, if, if I have a Sea Org person, it's a lot cheaper than having my own domestic help. Big time. And so if I have them reinforcing the, the, the nice feelings about Scientology, uh, just like the nice feelings they get from auditing, I'm going to be loyal. And so they're going to gen- gently insinuate those resources um, when they are not busy taking care of public into taking care of the whales. Yeah, yeah, that's a, I, I think that's a, it's not an un, unwarranted uh, idea. So... So I think that's uh, so I think that's kind of a, a, a potential future. So let's look at some other things that could happen mm-hmm. that could affect the future significantly, either endogenous or exogenous shocks, or some uh, things that are I think a combination of both. Mm-hmm. So the first first off is what happens when miscavige dies. Lots of things could happen. Okay. Yeah. I've I've always I've always sort of um, 
bounce the ball back on that question because my answer is completely depends on the context of how he disappears. Okay. Um, but let's, uh, let's just, let's presume, mm-hmm. um, I think for the sake of a cautious assumption, mm-hmm. let's presume that he doesn't leave his office in handcuffs, that he leaves his office in a box. Yep. I think that's a more likely outcome, by the way. Yeah. And, uh, or that he strokes out and is, you know, in a persistent vegetative state, but anyway, something that's medically or, you know, just dying of old age related that he, yep. that he leaves in a box. Um, you know, I think there's going to be a war of succession, and I think it's going to be, you know, that he got rid of all of the potential rivals, you know, in terms of his direct reports. So it's going to be somebody that nobody has heard of that somehow manages to to seize the reins. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know that there's going to be factions that will form and campaign, such as, you know, we know that, you know, we think there's a pretty good likelihood that Putin in Russia has cancer and he's only got a couple years to live. And so there's a lot of factions among the, the state security people, the hundred or so most powerful people in Russia. There are factions forming to try to, you know, find get their guy uh, to either be the guy in the big chair or to get their guy in the big chair. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I don't think that Scientology is going to have that kind of, um, uh, you know, situation just because they're the individual factions are so weak. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it may be the case that Miscavige takes the passwords for the offshore bank accounts to his grave. Uh, so there could be a lot of financial constraints that, that don't happen. That's uh, the thing I have been suspecting would be the case. But, you know, they can still manage to, you know, I, I still think that, yes, they may have some, some you know, financial pressure that they don't have the reserves uh, available to, um, you know, to get... Uh, uh, you know, to get them through a rainy day, but they can still cut costs. Yeah. And at that point, you may start to see something like shutting down the orgs that aren't profitable right. um, and, you know, more explicitly driving people to come to flag, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and just remember, you know, Hubbard died and the organization continued to grow mm-hmm. uh, for a number of years. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Hubbard did not take any precautions for succession. Miscavige won't. So, but I just don't think that Miscavige's uh, death is automatically doomed for the organization. I think it's gonna it's gonna be a challenge. It's gonna be chaos. But I think the organization, because of the size of the bureaucracy, um, and the fact that a lot of policy is still set in stone, even though a lot of it's ignored, I think it's still gonna be. Um, I think it's still gonna be around. Absolutely. I I I know of two people right now who could potentially step up. Not public names, not names that, you know, anybody's going to recognize, so I'm not even going to say them, but, you know, high-level Sea Org members right now who are and have been carrying the burden of carrying the organization for quite some time at Miscavige's directions. And so there are definitely people there who are, who are doing all kinds of work to keep the thing going who could theoretically move up that ladder. And, um, you know, and as far as him dying and taking the bank account, you know, with him— Pro- I mean, yes, but probably not really. I mean, there are tax attorneys and a and a yep. thing in place to to you know to when we talk about Sea Org reserves, there's this is documented somewhere. It's just not documented yeah. publicly. So, you know, so potentially this could be picked up and it could be reorganized in very interesting ways depending on who takes over. Uh-huh. All kinds of things could happen with this. Yeah, you know, 
I mean, quite honestly, one of the things I'm a little afraid of, to be honest, is that a kinder, gentler person takes over and and creates and sparks a renaissance. Yeah, it could happen. I mean, and it could happen. Yeah. And and I want to give an example in a minute of an organization where that did actually happen, a, a cultic organization, and they did have a bit of a renaissance. Mm. Um, and but I think this is sort of under the larger thing of, you know, let's think about Danny Masterson and the potential impact there. Sure. And, you know, you have a, a looming PR disaster going on. Huge. But yeah. but you have um there's a there's a it's it's hard to get people to care about certain types of sexual abuse. Um you know, it's almost a given that a cult is going to have a babe, you know, it's going to be a babe farm for the leaders. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're surprised that Scientology isn't. That's um, right. But, you know, like meditation, yoga, you know, there's any number of Buddhist monks. All of these guys have been revealed as, you know, having a babe farm yep. uh, among the followers. And, you know, it's it's kind of expected. And so the ability of certain types of sexual abuse, no matter how large scale or abhorrent, isn't a guarantee that that it's going to bring the organization down. So um, it's possible that direct enabling of Masterson's, um, you know, suppre- uh, you know, evasion of, of, of justice uh, by Scientology, you know, in terms of proof in court, it is possible that that's going to get a huge amount of press. Mm-hmm. It's possible that it won't um, because, you know, this has been dribbling out for a while. There was early coverage of his arrest. You know, it may be hard to bring that back to light. So it isn't clear that um, that man, that the Masterson thing is going to put people on alert about Scientology. And even if it does, it's going to choke off recruiting of new members that's already not happening. All right. So I think that, you know, Miscavige, we're not going to see Miscavige cuffed on this. We're not going to see... Um, you know, I think I think the odds are reasonable that Masterson gets convicted. Um, oh yeah, I think they're more than reasonable that he's going to jail. Um, yeah, the the chances of Sea Org members coming in and testifying is slim to none, I think. And the idea that any of them are going to get wrangled into this, or that that cover up is going to get wrangled into this, I think is very very marginal. Yeah, no, I think you know, I think the the cognoscenti of Scientology criticism. And the people who are, you know, into, you know, news hounds and so forth that read all of this stuff um, are going to be horrified by it. But I just don't think it's going to have the legs to really affect the population. Now, that said, um, you know, I think so we're talking about the idea that, you know, um, there are a lot of scandals, sexual scandals that kind of don't affect cults. But there are some that have. And to come back to the group that actually has had a bit of a renaissance, um, I'd, I'd look at the Hare Krishnas. Um, now, if we go back 50 years, uh, those of us who are around remember Hare Krishnas in airports wearing um, weird haircuts uh, with saffron robes and trying to sell us flowers and um, chanting and banging on drums and uh, all sorts of other weirdness. Yes. Um, and so they got to a certain level. And I... I've I've read a little bit about this, but not done a, a, a huge dive on it. But you know, they got to a certain level of membership. I don't know if it's fifty thousand, thirty thousand, a hundred thousand, whatever in the U.S. Um, and they started setting up schools 
And the thing was that the schools had a widespread incidence of systematic sexual abuse of the kids in their care. Um, and, you know, it was, it was horrific and it was, you know, it was really endemic. It was, you know, just to the point where the leadership said, this is an existential threat. If we don't stop this proactively ourselves, they are, we are going to get wiped out of the face of the earth. Hmm. And, you know, there were some prosecutions, you know, there were some notice and, and so forth, but they realized that if they didn't do something about this, it was going to blow up massively. Um, and so they went through a complete shift in evolution um, to a degree that, um, you know, I couldn't even begin to articulate, but, you know, what they believed, how they operated, they closed down the schools, they got rid of the bad people. Um, and now these days, all of the old Hare Krishnas with the chanting and the weird clothes and the weird haircuts, those are all gone. And Hare Krishna is basically just sort of an odd Hindu sect like a number of other odd Hindu sects. And the population is a lot more brown than white. Hmm. Um, and so they're not thriving, but they're not teetering on the precipice of going out of business. Hmm. And so, you know, that is a, uh, that idea of systematic um, sexual abuse that's pervasive is something that can significantly damage an organization. And I think there's, you know, when children are involved, you know, sexual abuse, uh, you know, becomes that much more heightened. I think we have an instinct to protect children, um, you know, which is why the QAnon thing has been so successful is that they have this fantasy that there's this cabal of child abusers, right. you know, satanic pedophiles, right? This is like, you know. Oh, it gives them, it empowers them as they think they're superheroes to fight and battle yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, there you go with that thing of trying to give a meaningless and ordinary life some meaning. I'm not just a, you know, schmo with a crappy job, you know, working part-time in a tire store. I'm fighting satanic pedophiles that control the world. That's right. As, um, as epitomized by the, um, the guy who went to Comet Ping Pong and with the, with yep. the gun, I'm, I'm here to save the kids. I'm here to get in there. And I mean, that's, that's really what they think they're doing. Yep. And, and so, you know, you've got, um, so you've got this, you know, sort of, uh, horror of you know systematic child abuse mm -hmm. and so one thinks that you know maybe the um, well uh, before i say that uh let's look at you know child abuse in the in in established you know wide you know mainstream religions right the biggest example is the catholic church Huge. and and you've got while there are several thousand documented cases that the church is admitted to if you play the math um, it's substantially higher. It's hundreds of thousands of kids were abused. Um, and, you know, to their credit, the church has worked uh, diligently to reform, although there are plenty of elements within the church that are, you know, dragging their feet or outright opposing it. Um, I'm not a Catholic. I never have been. I'm not anti-Catholic. So, you know, I'm horrified at the scope of the problem, um, but they seem to also be the lead to whatever level of effectiveness in trying to deal with it and confront it. Mm -hmm. um, sure. And, you know, you're dealing with, you know, they've paid, they paid out many billions of dollars in settlements and uh, they are closing churches as a result. You know, if you look at um, in the Northeast and the, the, the Midwest, uh, they're, they're closing buildings. Are um, they? That's, yes, that's, they are. That's news to me. 
yeah, there is some growth that's happening in places in the Sun Belt, Arizona, Texas, places like that, um, principally non-native um, you know, non born populations, you know, immigrant populations. So there mm -hmm. is some growth, um, but, but they are, you know, they are closing in, you know, in the Northeast, um, Chicago and other places as well. So, um, it is hurting them and weekly church attendance is dropping. Right. Um, the abuse scandals, Ireland was the most Catholic country in the world in the seventies, 90 plus percent of the population went to church every week. Now that number is about 30% in 40, 50 years. Well, um, that, that, that again, news to me, that is, I knew they were hit, but I didn't realize I, that I, I, cause I, to me, Ireland has always been a Catholic stronghold. So that yeah, is, and it has been, and, but they're not exporting priests. They don't have enough internally generated priests, uh, to, to service the congregations that still exist. And a lot of that has been due to the sexual abuse scandals and the workhouse scandals. So there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of disgust among the population that, you know, these people were out of touch. Now we're seeing the same thing with Canada with all the indigenous schools that were often run by uh, nuns and and, right. and so forth. And these, you know, unmarked graves and the, you know, that's just right. utterly horrific. And I'm sure that's going to affect, you know, the the image of Catholicism there. Exactly. Well, the thing with um, the difference between Master, I, I would say that, that in looking back at pulling back the Masterson's case, here you're looking at a, at, a, at what will be argued and could be argued legitimately as, yeah. well, this is a Scientologist who went off the rails. This isn't a dogmatic thing. This wasn't a, yep. this wasn't even a Scientology minister, right? right? This is just a Scientology celebrity who is rapey. And yep. so, yeah, we're going to prosecute him. The, the the you know the the idea that the church is going to get dragged into it and be shown to you know exposed for all the cover up that they did pretty unlikely yeah i mean it's like even if it's known it's not systematic and universal the way it is that's with the, the catholic point. church that's right and and well, i do want to axiom where yeah. it was where it was the leader and his in his in his immediate inner circle and it and it was actually branding women i mean that was see, that was the thing that was too far yeah. Right. The branding was too far. Having a secret babe farm, not too far. Exactly. That's right. And so that was a specific act that was over the top. Yep. So I think that's one axis. The other axis is, you know, universal, broad um, pattern of child sexual abuse that's facilitated and condoned by the organization. Right. And so we've been talking about the Catholic Church, but I have said for a long time that um, the when this starts to really hit the Protestants, it's going to hit them just as hard, if not harder. Mm -hmm. And so now we've just seen the Southern Baptists releasing their report um, and seeing a lot of denial around the severity and the impact of that. Yep. Um, you know, and I think there are plenty of other denominations as well. The only the only difference is that um, because the Catholic Church is much more centralized, it's a lot easier to sue. But I think that, you know, we now see complicity of the Southern Baptist national leadership in reassigning um, ministers and we see the their complicity that they've had lists of people they know are suspect maintained nationally with a national reporting system so that makes the national organization complicit so i think there's right. um right. you know as the largest protestant denomination in the u.s um they have now got a target painted on their back so right. you know as i as i say this is not a catholic problem um this is a a religion problem. And if you don't believe that it's a, uh, just Christians, um, look at the abuse in, uh, 
Orthodox Jewish communities in, uh, in New York and plenty of other places as well. It's pervasive in religion. And so, yeah. And it's, and it's, and there's a lot of reasons for it guys, including, you know, misplaced power dynamics and authority figures and sexual repression and indoctrination. There's so many things going on there. Yep. I wanted to quickly, I know some people might be commenting furiously right now or thinking to themselves about this, like what, but there is rampant sexual abuse in Scientology. Right. We're not denying that. Right. There's exactly. There's no attempt here to whitewash Scientology as a non-abusive group when it comes to sexual abuse. Right. What it's I'm rampant, but go ahead. And what I'm suggesting is that if it were shown that Scientology were engaging in this broad-based, organizationally sanctioned pattern of sexual abuse of children as endemic across the organization, then I think that that is something that could cause that could be turned into uh, a, a level, an existential level of crisis that um, that they could pop up. That's and so, right. um, you know, I think, you know, we've we had the Mace Kingsley Ranch, we've had, you know, individual things in the past. I think the place to uh, the place to go is uh, child labor. Um, and also places like the Canyon Oaks Ranch, which is where, which is in uh, northern LA County in a very rural area, where they warehouse kids of staff or sea orders, somebody or other. I, I well, we have to be clear now that they actually shut that down too. They did. Okay, I was not they aware did. of that. Yeah, that okay. was a sea. That was a sea org school boarding school type setup up in the up in the hills outside LA. I knew lots of kids who came from there, and then they shut it down. Because okay. the, because because of that potential legal and PR exposure, okay. they got on top of that real quick. So so basically, you know, they're uh, if they are responding, they may be able to mute this before it blows up. That's right, and I think that was their effort back then, because that was when kids who had been Sea Org members raised in the Sea Org got out and started telling their stories publicly, and this was in okay. the '90s that this started. Yeah, no, I, I, I did some looking into it probably five or six years ago, and it was still going. So I was looking for yeah. property tax discrepancies oh, and issues. Okay, as, as far as I understand it, they shut that down. If I'm wrong, I'm happy to be wrong. But as far as I know, they, they shut that property down. Yeah, I had not tracked it, so I, I don't know. Yeah, fair enough. I, and like I said, anybody out there has any knowledge or information about that you want to share? I am more than happy to review it. But here's another example of where you get a situation that's kind of normal and nobody would would uh, would regard it as a problem, and then you add one little twist and it all of a sudden brings uh, down a, a religious organization. And so that's Liberty University and Jerry Falwell Jr., the son of the uh, the founder. Yeah. So, so Falwell Jr. had a reputation for being a little bit out of control. And he was, you know, running this organization, which is, you know, 40,000 students, many of them are, you know, online, but, you know, it's a billion plus dollar organization. He'd been running it as his personal fiefdom, and he had been, um, uh, you know, in, uh, it, it later came out that there had been some very questionable judgment on his part in the presence of women. But what brought him down and caused him to lose his job was that he... Uh, was allowing his wife to sleep with a much younger man who he then showered with, uh, you know, corporate money 
But the thing that really put it over the edge was that he was watching while his wife was getting nailed by this guy. He was in a, and, and that was what, what brought him down because that sort of masculinity, uh, you know, the sort of toxic masculine stereotype is like that he enjoys being cuckolded, um, that that's what, that that's what it was, he was getting off on. That was too much. Wow. You know, corruption and financial shenanigans. Yeah. You know, you can be forgiven, uh, your, that your wife is fooling around. Um, you know, that can be forgiven that you, that you were okay with it, that she was being, you know, fooling around because you were trying to save your marriage. You can talk your way out of that, but watching no, that's just right over the red line. And he's now completely out disgraced and uh, hopefully we'll never see him again. Wow. Doesn't that, you know, circling back around to how we started this or kind of got onto this in the first place, isn't it interesting how you would never ever in a million years of all the people who've been watching Jerry Falwell Jr. all these years and hoping secretly and not so secretly for his downfall, who would have predicted that's what would have, what would have done it. Yeah. That's, you know, I think, I think you get to a point where you think you can operate with impunity or you just have these urges that, you know, people enable you to get away with stuff and you just like follow these weird things. That's right. And and you do stupid stuff that you know is stupid, but you know as you're doing it, but you just like keep following it. I mean, it was- well, it, it, it's it's not you know it's it's it, people talk about this in terms of well they're so full of their own power and ego and stuff they think they can do no wrong. It's not only that; it's that there is a long series right of before that thing that they're getting busted for. There's a long series of bad judgments and decisions and bad things they did that they got away with. Exactly right. And that's what empowers them to keep pushing the envelope. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it might have been, well, he had an affair, then his wife found out about it. And then she said, I'm going to go have an affair. And then they worked out a deal where, okay, but only if I can vet the guy that you sleep with, you okay. know, and then it turns into this and then boom. That's right. But, you know, it's like you don't know until after this happens, whether the particular torque on the thing, right? So the Nexium babe farm, that was business as usual until they started, you know, cauterizing people right. without, without their consent. This yeah. was okay until, until he, you know, discovered he, you know, the, in that masculinity type culture of, he liked being cuckolded, you yeah. know, and, and you can't, it's hard to predict. That you could, will, how could you possibly? Up. How could you possibly predict that? And that's why these predictions end up. I think you'd agree. We, we have to end up kind of generalizing them. Because mm-hmm. how do you go that specific? You'd have to yeah. be a psychic to know that. You know, like how oh. would you possibly? Yep. So this actually is something to end on. Is to say, okay, so what is the what does Scientology's future look like? And the answer is, it starts to look like. And, and, and so since we, it's not realistic to think about extinguishing Scientology so that it's completely out of business, all the orgs close, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, what, is it, what does it look like? Well, you know, I think you have to say, let's, it, it's, it's like a black hole. It's like the lifespan of a star that turns into a black hole. And so as it implodes, as it runs out of energy, the first thing is, you know, the star's influence on other stars and other planets. 
you know, in other words, let's, you know, let's try and minimize the harm that Scientology does to the world outside and to members, right? So, you know, the rank and file members, you know, if we can help them to get, dis- you know, get disillusioned and leave via messaging or, uh, you know, like that, then that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, if we can help so that people don't get recruited and new members get recruited, that's a good thing. And especially if we can help people uh, from like, you know, uh, lesser developed countries, you know, poorer countries like, or Ukraine now that there's millions of refugees sloshing around the world from Ukraine, um, help them become staff. We, you know, that's the, that's the greatest good, right? So, so helping so that the people that are not in the Scientology orbit are not harmed by that. Right. That's, that's the, the first stage of, you know, the sort of the implosion to a point and, and eventually the organization gets to a point where it gets rid of all of the marginal members. And that's probably somewhat close to happening, but there's still there's still a few, there's still a fair number. Oh yeah, no, for but, sure, for sure. But it is it is it has been, and I, and I was reminded of this today. I, I was posting a critical clip on my on my clips channel from a, from four years ago where I talked about how they were circling the wagons way back then. Yep. By you know, harshly treating their on-the-fence members. Oh, you're on the fence? Well, you better get in here and get your ethics interview or we're going to investigate you and comev you and get all your and contact all your family and friends and start talking crap to them about you. So they were already, you know, tightening the grip, iron glove, you know, the iron fist mm-hmm. coming down harder. So, so all these things you've just been talking about is exactly what's been happening. Yeah. And it will continue, you know, that, that, you know, ultimately it, as it implodes, it will cast off, you know, the least committed members. And, you know, we're now at a point where the least committed members are still way more committed than people who left 20 years ago, but they're the least committed members and they're going to be out, you know, they're going to, they're going to be out. Um, So at some point the organization will reach a relatively equilibrium state just like a black hole where nothing gets out, but, you know, not much else gets in because it's already, you know, everything in the neighborhood has already been sucked into the black hole. And now everybody, everything else is far enough away that it's outside the gravitational well. Um, And Scientology can indeed continue for a very long time, but its ability to harm people reaches a minimum. It isn't going to reach zero for a long time, but it will reach a minimum. And at that point, you know, you, you have to say, Unfortunately, you have to say good enough is good enough, um, you know, as far as as far as, you know, trying to shut it down, unless some completely bizarre thing happens that we can't even possibly begin to to predict. That's right. That's right. Like some, you know, I don't know. It'd have to be crazy. I mean, church sanctioned mass shooting or something. I mean, that's something exactly really whack, you know, exactly. Yeah. That'd be something crazy. But those, of course, are the things that are by their nature unpredictable. Exactly right. Yeah. So I, I could not agree with you more. I think we have covered some some incredibly important stuff here um, in this in terms of what to look at and look for um, and the things that inform us. And these, you know, what are what are longtime Scientology watchers? What should you be looking at and looking for and doing about all of this, right, is Exposure, exposure, exposure is the thing that gets people's attention and um, and keeps people away. And that's that's pretty much been the focus of my channel for the last, you know, nine, ten years, right, has been 
how can I get information out there to to discourage people from from signing up or checking it out or mm-hmm. looking into it? Because here's what it really is. Oh, okay, good. Now I now I know to stay away from it. Um, and that's been that's been pretty successful, you know. Yeah. And now we're seeing uh, just bad decision after bad decision. And who knows? You know, they could pull out of this this nosedive that they're in right now, mm-hmm. or Miscavige or somebody else could have some random or not so random great idea and do a 180 and turn it around. Yeah, unlikely, but possible. Yeah, very unlikely. But, unlikely, but we have to put it there. Yep. But I think, you know, ultimately you say, okay, so what are those of us who have invested a lot of effort thinking about or working to, you know, protect the world from the harms of Scientology? What, what happens to us after that? And I think the answer is pretty obvious. What we've learned here will help us deal with a lot of similar spontaneously arising organizations. You know, I think that social media has a consequence of allowing cults to create, uh, to arise spontaneously uh, more than ever before. And the skills that we've, we've learned in organizing, publicizing, um, thinking about, strategizing, you know, demonstrating, all of that um, really will stand us in in helping the you know the world more broadly in a very very crazy age you know so we've got the self-proclaimed queen of canada we've got you know the this woman who's clearly mentally ill who has got thousands of people threatening um you know businesses for their covid policies and now doing all sorts of other uh bizarre things and potentially becoming violent um that's just one of many examples of craziness that we have that's right. um, and so the world needs, you know, at some point we'll we'll move on from Scientology, but the world needs people who will stand up and campaign for truth and, uh, you know, science and intellectual honesty. Exactly. Exactly. I hope that what we're doing here is encouraging that kind of behavior, you know, that kind of thinking, that kind of looking and that kind of action. It's not just it's not, just, you know, we. It's the, the, these things are not fought just through a keyboard. <laughs> you know, these are people you got to go yeah. talk to. You got to interact. You got to like get out in the world and 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 do something about these things. You know, and that's that's really the whole effort here. So, John, thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me, Chris. And yeah. uh, it was really good to kind of get back into the game and uh, and talk about some of this stuff. And I'm looking forward to our next one, which we won't spoil by uh, announcing the topic. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yes, exactly. Thank you again, uh, folks out there. Uh, thank you very much for tuning in and, uh, and watching and listening and supporting. And I hope that you found the show informative, educational, and entertaining, maybe a little bit, a little bit. And uh, I hope you will subscribe to the channel, uh, share this work, uh, out and about there on the interwebs. And of course, uh, if you love, if you like what we're doing here, Uh, show us some love on the channel through some financial support. That all being said, see you guys next week. Bye-bye.